0: Okay, so we're looking at serving one another in love. Paul says, For you brothers we're called to freedom, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is fulfilled in one single decree. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be consumed by each other. So the first part of this verse is that God has called us to freedom. Um, you, my brothers, were called to be free. Who's doing the calling here? God is the one that's calling people to be free. He, so what's the heart of God? The heart of God is that you not be in any legalistic religious bondage which is every religion in the world, and within Christianity, it can become very easy to get in legalistic bondage within Christianity. I was listening to a guy this week who was an ex-Muslim. He's come to faith in Christ. And he was talking about living under the laws of Islam. And his, his mentality was that if he could obey the laws of Islam daily, living under these requirements of Islam and his words, not mine, is that he would begin to earn some points with Allah. And then as he moved further and further into the laws of Islam, the requirements of Islam, the daily duties of Islam, the, Islam, the disciplines of Islam, then he would, he would acquire more and more points. Um, what set him free was understanding that Jesus paid it all. There was no more life under law for him. There was no more trying. There was no more effort. There was no more works. There was no more trying to gain a right standing with Allah or get into a right standing with Allah. Or it was freely provided in Christ. And as he understood that truth, which is grace, he began understanding grace, that he was able to understand that Jesus is God, that he has a relationship with God now through the blood of Christ. And it's not him and his obedience, it's not him and his disciplines, it's not him and his works, it's not him and his efforts, he began to notice it's Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's what changed his life, and that's what set him free from Islam. And so God wanted this man to be free. God called him to freedom, and God calls us to freedom within the body of Christ. The heart of God is that you and I be free from any legalistic requirements from any legalistic efforts, from any legalistic disciplines, from anything that we think is required to be in right relationship with him or to be in fellowship with him or to stay forgiven by him. That's all bondage if I think there's something required of me to gain those things. Because the beauty of Christmas is the word gift, right? A gift is something that someone's given us that we didn't purchase, we didn't earn, we didn't work for, we may have not even asked for and a gift is is purchased by someone so that someone else can enjoy the gift that was purchased so at christmas time we typically focus in on the person who is opening the gift but the real person to focus in on is not the person opening the gift but the person who gave the gift because the giver of the gift gets more joy out of giving the gift to the person who receives it and is excited about the gift than the one who even gets the gift. So God gets excited for us. He's the giver of the gift of grace. He's the giver of the gift of forgiveness. He's the giver of the gift of righteousness. And all the gifts of God were purchased for us through the blood of Christ. So they come free to us and God says I want you to open the gift of forgiveness. I want you to open the gift of righteousness. I want you to open the gift of eternal life. And how do we open those gifts? Simply by faith, by belief. God, I believe you've given me the gift of forgiveness. I accept it. I believe you've given me the gift of righteousness. I accept it. I believe that you've given me the gift of eternal life. I accept it. And when we live in 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 accepting these gifts by faith, knowing I don't earn, work for it, try anything, they're all given to me by faith, then freedom will come. Freedom will come. God has called us to freedom. Number one, under that, God has called us to be free from trying to obtain forgiveness and righteousness through religious activity and morality. Number two, God has called us to be free from trusting, uh, called us to be free by trusting we are forgiven and righteous by grace through faith in jesus so how are we to use our freedom then paul begins addressing this in galatians 5 13 for you brothers were called to be free but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh now this is what legalists want me to get to way back when not necessarily in this class but whenever you teach on the gospel of grace and you're explaining it in its fullness the legalist among the group always want you to address this first. Oh, but they they can't use it as a license to sin. Well, Paul doesn't address it until Galatians 5. Because it's important that we lay a, a foundation of the gospel of grace before we even talk about morality or we mix them all up. But the legalist always want the issue of morality addressed first. Oh, Brad, you can't teach that because if you do, people are going to go sin. They're going to use grace as a license to sin. They're going to see grace as an opportunity to go sin. Well, Paul understood that. I understand that. Grace teachers understand that. So it's not that we ignore that, which we're accused of so often. It's just that we understand before you get there, we've got to make sure people understand the gospel first. Because if they don't understand the gospel, then we're just adding to a legalistic work. And, and that's not scriptural. Paul doesn't address morality in Ephesians in chapter 4. In Colossians, he doesn't address it till later on. Because Paul always understood, and the Holy Spirit in Paul always understood, that the gospel of grace, the foundation of the gospel, has to be laid first in the hearts of people before you go on to any of the issues of behavior. And so that's the strategy of Paul in his letters, um, in the majority of his letters. So you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh or an excuse to live in sin. Well, because I'm under grace, because I'm forgiven, because I'm righteous, because everything in the Christian life is free, and everything in the Christian life is a gift, and there are no, there's no effort for me required. There's no works for me required. There's nothing I have to do to stay righteous, to be holy, to gain uh, forgiveness, to be in fellowship with God. It's all given as a gift. Then what would keep somebody from saying, well, I can go sin all I want to now. And so Paul addresses this. And here's how Paul addresses this. Number two. We are free from the law to serve others. We are free from the law to serve in love. So he says, For you, brothers, were called to freedom, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He says, Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is fulfilled in a single decree. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the way Paul handles this Question is he he educates and he teaches that the reason God set us free from the law was number one, so we could be free in our relationship with him. And secondly, so that we could serve others. So God didn't set us free from the law so that we could sin. He set us free from the law so that we could serve others. Now, if you're a Gentile, you were never under the law. There was no law to be set free from. All right. Unless you, in the early church, got into a legalistic group or, or uh, uh, church where they were making the, the Galatians obey the law. And now from that point, it's like, hey, you're not under law. God's set us free from the law so that we can love. And so he uses the word here, serve one another in love. So he set us free from the law. So that we could serve others in love, which means I don't have to worry about where I stand with God anymore. You and I don't have to worry if we're forgiven. We don't have to worry if we're righteous. We don't have to worry if we're in fellowship with God. We don't have to worry if we have eternal life. We are free. We know those are gifts given to us by grace. And so these are love gifts from God to us. And now we, we love others, we begin loving others, we begin serving others. And the word serve, serve one another. a servant is someone who does something for someone else to make their life easier and more enjoyable. We're taking the burden off this person, and now we're taking that burden upon ourselves to serve them. The, the, the wife who's cooked the entire meal. The husband serves his wife by cleaning all the dishes. All right? Um, the, the, whatever acts of service we can do. I saw Carl do that when I was at his house. He's just doing the dishes, serving his wife, doing the dishes. Johnny cooked up a beautiful, wonderful, tasty meal, and Carl did the dishes. He was serving his wife. And so once we understand I'm free from the law, then I'm free to serve other people because I'm not worried about where I stand with God. I know that because Christ secured it. Now I'm free to serve. I'm free to, free to love people and serve people very practically. So a servant is someone who makes another person's life easier and more enjoyable. And a servant is someone who helps another person no matter how hard it may be. Notice what Paul says, the entire law is fulfilled in a single decree, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what Paul's saying, that's, that's, a, that's the law of Moses, that's one of the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as you love yourself. Here's what Paul's saying, These, they're trying to get people back under the law in Galatia. You need to make sure you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, you need to make sure you love others as you love yourself, these are the two great commandments. Jesus used those same two great commandments to convince people they were sinners in, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, Galatians, I know you want to obey the law, but you've been redeemed from the law. You've been set free from the law. You are not under the law. You are not under the two great commandments, and you are not under the Ten Commandments, and you're not under... Um, the ordinance of the Mosaic law, the rules, the requirements, the days, the diets, the duties, it's all been abolished in Christ. It is not a part of the body of Christ. Remember in the doctrinal statement of Grace Fellowship Church. The church and Israel are separate. There's a, we're distinct from one another, which means the church is not under any of the law of Moses, not any of the law of Moses, not under the Ten Commandments, not under the two great commandments, not under any of the diets, days, and duties. Absolutely none of it. All of them point to Christ. They find their fulfillment in Christ, and now we relate to God through Jesus. So here's what Paul's saying. I know you want to obey the law, but you're not under the law. So here's what Paul's saying. Don't worry about fulfilling the law, don't worry about obeying the law. Don't worry about loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength because you can't. And don't worry about loving others as you love yourself because you can't. (coughs) Just focus on serving people in love. As we serve people in love, we fulfill the law. Isn't that something? But what we're going to discover is we have zero power to love. That's the entire problem with the human race. When mankind separated themselves, when we separated ourselves from God in the Garden of Eden, we separated ourselves from love because God is love. That's why a law was necessary, because we can't love. Had we been able to love, then no need for a law, right? But because we can't love, then the need for a law. Love doesn't murder, right? And love doesn't steal. And love doesn't lie. And because the human race could not love, God chose Abraham as an example of the entire human race, creates one body of of one nation, the people of Israel, who represent all of us as far as the human sinful nature is concerned. And the problem with Israel is they couldn't love. They never could love. And that's the entire problem with the human race. That's why God said, I'm going to send my spirit in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. It says it also in Ezekiel. I'm going to put my spirit in your heart, and I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart that can love. And Paul brings all this home later in his teachings. So, love your, um, so a servant is someone who helps another person, no matter how hard it may be. Now, if you notice with the disciples, who are just like all of us, right, they were always wanting positions of power. And remember, they, was, they were always arguing over who would have the greatest positions in the kingdom of God. When Jesus ushered in his kingdom, they argued over who was going to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus even got the mother involved in it at one point in time, who approaches Jesus to, to make the request. And, and, and when the mother of, of James and John makes the request of Jesus that they be allowed to sit at his right hand, then the, that so angered the other disciples that they start arguing about it because they wanted to be in that position. And now they're arguing. Remember, Jesus is with them, and then Jesus, they go into the house, and Jesus, Jesus knows what they're arguing about. And he asked him a question. Hey, what, what were y'all arguing about while we were traveling on the road, while we were walking on the road? And he begins to teach them that, that even he himself, the Son of Man, didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give himself as a ransom for people. I think that's the fire alarm they're testing, maybe, next door of what we might hear. Hey, Mike, will you close those back two doors for us? Thank you so much. And Jesus would say, hey, don't be like the king, the king, the Gentile kings and the Gentile kings love their power, but they won't serve anybody. He says, rather, I want you to be among people as one who serves. So Jesus was always trying to get into the heart of his disciples, this attitude of being a servant. Serving others in love, but they just couldn't wrap their brain around that. And even in the Lord's, you know, when we get to John 13, before Jesus takes um, um, a towel and washes the feet of the disciples, we can piece it together and go back into the book of Mark because they, they were arguing that they were having the same argument that they had on the road. Now they're just having it in the upper room. Jesus is hours before dying on the cross. He's hours before being arrested. He's hour, hours before being beaten. And they're arguing about who's going to be in the top of Jesus's uh, cabinet when he rules as king. And Jesus, hearing them continuing to argue the same thing that's been going on ever since they became disciples... That's when he takes the towel, and that's when he kneels down, and that's when he washes their feet, and that's when he says, I do this as an example for you, and I want you to serve others the way I've served you. He's still trying to get that idea, that thought, that it's not about you and your power. It's about you taking a position of being a servant. And the best leaders aren't those who use their power to suppress people. The best leaders are those who use their power to serve people. Because when we suppress people, we tear them down. We keep them down. We keep them from becoming all that they could be. But leaders who use their power to serve people build people up. Help people become who they were created to be. Help people discover what they were created to be. So Jesus was trying to get that thought and that truth into the hearts of his disciples prior to his death. Paul picks up on this idea in Philippians. Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, let this mind, let this thought, let this attitude Let this approach to life that Jesus had be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mindset, what attitude, what approach to life is Paul talking about? And he tells us, Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So Jesus... Even though he was at the top of the chart, the organizational chart, so to speak, did not, his identity wasn't in where he was on creation's organizational chart. He was at the top. But that wasn't his identity. He wasn't on a power trip simply because he was the creator of the universe. All right who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being made in human likeness. Now we see Jesus, Paul teaching the Philippians the exact same thing Jesus was trying to teach the disciples because there was a big problem going on in Philippi. They were arguing with one another just like the disciples were. The Phrase that we hear a lot: "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling." The context of that was they were arguing in Philippi, and so coming out of this uh, through five eleven, Paul goes into "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling," meaning with great respect. He's saying, rather than arguing and trying to assume positions of power, work out your salvation within your church not work for it, but let, let your salvation work itself out in and through you by serving people in your church. So he's saying quit arguing in Philippi over who's the, the top leader and who's the top dog and who's the one. Stop arguing and start serving. Stop arguing and start having the attitude of a servant. That's what he means by work out your salvation, and you can see that within the context. So he emptied himself in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The ultimate example of being a servant. Humility, humble, uh, emptying ourselves, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, in this verse set of verses, what do we learn from Jesus and Paul about serving others? Jesus in his conversations with his disciples, Paul in his letter to the, Philipp- the Philippians. The first thing we learn is leadership is not about a position of power but about serving people serving others. And Jesus said be among others as one who serves. So be among a, a dad, how how can I lead my family as a dad? I want to be I want to lead my family by being among my family by starting first with serving my wife. I want to see my sons and daughters I want them to see me serving my wife. I want them to see me helping my wife. I want them to see me loving her as Christ loved me, serving her as Christ loved me. Amen. (laughs) I have nothing for the women, nothing for the men that might get an amen from the men. I'm sorry. Um, But we want to be among people in our church here we want to be among our church family as one who serves. We don't want to serve to the point of burnout. Because in legalistic churches, if, you're, if, if the motivation for serving is guilt-driven, then it's, it's, it's got to be grace-driven. Serving always has to be grace-driven. It's, I, I'm so changed by the good news of God's grace. I'm so changed by the power of the gospel that, uh, that the reason I'm serving is is to help get the good news of God's grace out to people. And so we come together as a team with one goal. We want to get out the good news of God's grace to people. We want to see the lives of people transformed by the grace of God. That should be the heart of every single church to me in the entire world because that's what we see in Acts. We want to see the lives of people transformed by the grace of God. That's why churches exist. That's why Paul started churches. That's why he started the church in Ephesus and the church in Philippi. That's why the church in Colossae was started. That was his heart in starting churches so that then churches would become communication centers of grace to the community, to the unsaved, and education centers of grace to the saved. That's why you see Paul writing letters back to Ephesus to educate the believers about grace. Now, what what was, why did he need to educate the believers about grace? Because they were once unbelievers when he went into Ephesus. And he communicated the salvation message of grace to them. But then he would write letters back to say, but there's more to grace than just being saved by grace. There's a lot more Christ did for you. You're not just saved by grace, but you're righteous and you're holy and you're forgiven and you have eternal life and you're in fellowship and you're adopted into God's family. And he lists all those blessings in Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul is so excited about what God's done for us in Christ that he calls it to the praise of his glorious grace. And he's so excited, he doesn't even know where to put the period. Therefore, he doesn't put a period in Ephesians like one through fifteen. He just is like dictating to whoever's writing his letter. He's just listing all these blessings that are freely ours in Christ by grace, and he wants people to understand that. And what I've come to understand since 1990 of teaching what I'm teaching you to people, it's exciting to share this message because it's people's lives are changed when when it's shared. It's just amazing, the power of the gospel in the lives of believers. I know the power of the gospel to save an unbeliever. So do you. But the power of the gospel of grace in the heart of a believer is amazing too. Grace is not only for the unbeliever. Grace is for the believer too. And to educate people about that is... Is, is exciting for me because it's exciting to see what understanding the gospel of grace does in people's lives. Serving people will produce positive results in our lives. Sometimes serving others is painful, but it is productive. Remember, Jesus humbled himself, became a man, became a servant, and served us even to the point of death on a cross, not just death, but death on the cross, the ultimate act of shame. So what does this mean? What's Paul saying about serving? Sometimes when we serve people, it's painful. It, it, it costs something. It hurts. It's, it's not easy to serve somebody. Sometimes it's easy to serve because we get a lot of joy out of it, and it feels good to serve. But t- sometimes serving others doesn't feel good at all because the nails didn't feel good, right? The nails and the thorn where he's serving us. It didn't feel good. It hurts. It's painful sometimes to serve. It requires sacrifice, not to gain something, not to get something, but it hurts, and as we sacrifice maybe our time or our money or our what we could be doing, or our comfort to serve somebody, and it hurts, and it hurts. But remember the pain is always productive in the life of the person that we're serving right think about how how productive has the cross been for you and me how productive has understanding what christ did for us on the cross how productive is it in within us internally eternally, and even externally in our relationships. Just understanding what Christ did and Him serving us. Incredibly productive. As we serve others like Christ has served us, it may bring pain to us, but it's going to be so productive in the lives of others so that it's worth the pain because of what it does in somebody else's life. And then God will lift up those who serve others we're, we're, we're pretty familiar with every knee will bow and every tongue confess, and that's a verse that's quoted a lot. But it's really fun to put verses back in their context. That's when the verses can really come to life for us. Why is this verse there? Because God exalted Jesus to the highest place. Jesus humbled himself to the lowest place and God exalted him to the highest place. Remember, what were the disciples trying to do? Exalt themselves to the highest place. And Jesus was constantly saying, you're you're missing it. Take the lowest place, take the form of a servant and God will lift you up. And now that's what we see here. Jesus didn't come to earth to be at the top of the organizational chart. Even though he created it, it's his chart. But he took himself off the top of the organizational chart, put himself on the very bottom of the organizational chart, and started cleaning restrooms. That's the heart of Jesus. Started cleaning toilets, so to speak started mopping floors, so to speak. That's our Savior. He humbled himself. So unless I'm finally free from the law and I'm not trying to get something from God and gain something and make sure I have my quiet time and make sure I pray and make sure I have my daily devotion, I'm missing the And and that's all good if somebody wants to do it. But if that's my understanding of the Christian life, which was mine for several years... I've missed the whole thing because I can have a quiet time and not serve my wife. I can have my daily devotional and not serve my my husband. I I, I can do all the spiritual disciplines and take time out for the day and spend 15 minutes with God and not serve my co-workers. I've missed the whole thing. I've missed it all. The Galatians had missed it. And Paul's writing a letter to say, hey, it's not your disciplined approach to the law. But it's what Jesus has done to set you free from the law so that you can serve others in love. All right. And as you serve others in love, you fulfill the law, but you're not even trying to fulfill the law. You're just serving others in love. Now, law-based relationships um, result in, number one, continual criticism. Galatians 5.15 says, But if you keep on biting and devouring each other, law-based relationships always produce biting and devouring. Because law-based relationships are not about serving others. Law-based relationships are about you serving me. My law requires you to serve me. My law requires you to do what I want you to do. My law requires for me to be in control of you so that I can get you to do what I want you to do, so I can make you so afraid of not doing what I want you to do because I criticize you and I condemn you and I get angry at you when you don't live up to my law. So relationships are destroyed when they're law-based relationships. And whoever's in the home sets the law. Whoever has the most power in the home sets the law. And typically, the one who has the most power in the home is the one who gets the most angry in the home. And the person setting the environment of the home is the one who has the most anger because that's their way of controlling people to live up to their law. Now, everybody's afraid not to fulfill the law of, not Moses, but maybe mom or maybe dad or maybe a teenager, That law is controlling, that person's controlling. it. That's when relationships begin to break down. We begin biting each other. You didn't do this and you didn't do that. And it's not about me serving you anymore. It's that you didn't serve me. You're not doing what I want you to do. So we become like the disciples, right? Even in our homes. Having my quiet time in a small group, serving on a ministry team, committed to my daily devotionals, Committed to not sinning, but I can't love. I can't, I can't. Patience is not there. Kindness is not there. Gentleness is not there. Go to church every Sunday, but something's just wrong. And what's wrong is, is I bought into a legalistic system of Christianity that focuses on me and my efforts and not on Jesus and what he's done for me. And I've never been taught and understood what the Christian life truly is. I've, taught, I've been taught that the Christian life is a set of spiritual disciplines. This week, I get something from smallgroup.com or something each week. Last week, I go open it up. It's like, how to help your small group be consistent in spiritual disciplines this year? I'm like, oh, no, we're missing it. We're missing it. We're still missing it. And it's like... Oh, if you want to grow, get into a small group. Not if they're going to teach you legalistic things. You're actually going to go backwards in the small group. And so I love small groups. I'm the small group's pastor, right? (laughs) But what I understand is small groups do not equate to spiritual growth because I've seen people be in small groups for years and never grow. Spiritual truth produces spiritual growth. And it's important that small groups contain spiritual (laughs) truth. And we'll go to the book of Acts and we'll say, look, they did small groups in Acts chapter 4 and Paul did small groups in Ephesus, so small groups must be the answer. No. Why were they doing small groups in Acts? Because thousands of people had come in from all over the world who were Jewish. They, and so then the, the apostles would go from house to house to house preaching what Peter had publicly taught in Acts chapter 2, helping them understand that Jesus was the Messiah. So their mentality wasn't, we've got to get these people in small groups so they can grow. That was not the mentality at all. The mentality was, what do we do with thousands of people who we need to help understand scripture so that they can grow? Well, we'll put them in small groups, and Peter, you go to this house, and and uh, the, this disciple will go to that house, and this disciple will go to this house, or apostle, and, and y'all teach them about the identity of Jesus from Jewish scriptures. So it wasn't small groups that produced spiritual growth. It was spiritual truth within small groups that produced spiritual growth. And that's my heart, is that we just don't become a church of, oh, we've got to have more and more small groups. Yeah, you know, we want to connect people, and they are great at connecting people relationship, relationally, but... We want to understand that we want our small groups to contain spiritual truth because that's what transforms the lives of people is spiritual truth. Can you imagine a lot of small groups where people were really beginning to understand the fullness of what Christ did? Can you imagine hundreds of small groups at Grace Fellowship Church where people were coming into that group and they were learning more about who, what Christ did for them and their freedom and they're being set free and that's that's the power there, is, is helping people understand what Christ has done on the cross. Not, hey, here's a book you can go through about how to get your people practicing more spiritual disciplines in 2020. Here's more legalism. Here's more bondage. Here's more, here's more rules. You know, I know the heart's good, but I'm sorry I get kind of passionate about that because I was in that for years. And when somebody shared with me the fullness of the gospel, it's like, well, man, that changed my life. Um, Paul said, let us not become conceited provoking and envying one another. Life under law. When we're conceited, it means I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm the powerful one in the family. I know the most. I'm the one. And then from that, we criticize and We can provoke and envy each other. So when I'm envying somebody, I'm not focusing on serving them. I'm now focused on they got more than I do. But when we're focused on serving each other in love, envy will begin to go away. And jealousy will begin to go away. And criticism will begin to go away. And provoking each other and anger. And and I'm just focused on serving in love.